This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Since he was fired by Trump for refusing to bend the knee, the former FBI director James Comey has become one of the most insightful and authoritative defenders of American democracy and the institutions of American justice. James has a new novel out, inspired by his experience prosecuting the Mafia in New York, It's called Central Park West, and it is a wild ride, sizzling with crime, corruption and conspiracy. He joined us in London at The Conduit for a conversation with the club's founder, Paul Van Zyl. He talked to Paul about his new calling as a novelist following a long career in the pursuit of justice, and shared his insights into the state of America today. So I'm going to start by... um reading the beginning of a Washington Post review of this book, because I think it helps to sort of set some of the ground rules for our conversation. Um, And it starts by saying, in the good old days, when I was studying English in school, we were told not to let our attitude about a writer's life cloud our response to his work. This was a comforting pretense, since we were reading books by some dishonest, abusive, and racist men Insert your favorite writer here. Nowadays, of course, biography rules. On social media, mixed in with the ever-shifting calls to boycott that fried chicken or resist those hobby supplies, we find adamant reminders that we mustn't read that novel or watch that movie because so-and-so is a scoundrel. Our purchases have been elevated to votes. Our aesthetic responses recast as ethical judgments, not least of all on ourselves, which I admit is a loaded introduction to Central Park West, the debut novel by James Comey. After all, the former FBI director is no monster, but clearly his new thriller and its attendant publicity exists because of the author's action outside the realms of literature. And most readers, aside from the chronically unplugged or the divinely disinterested, will approach Central Park West with confirmed opinions about Comey's responsibility for the bungled FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server and Donald Trump's alleged collusion with Russia. In short, Comey is monster adjacent. And so there's certainly people in this room who may think that Jim Comey is a monster because of his actions in responsible for the election and may have led to the election of Donald Trump. And there are others who may feel he's unfairly treated Donald Trump. And those feelings may well be greater than your aesthetic assessment of this debut novel. 
And so I want to start our conversation by asking Jim Comey this. How should a reader who is also a citizen evaluate Central Park West? And do you think it's fair or even possible to ask the reader to separate the author from the work? Thank you for that, and good morning. Um, I have not read any reviews of Central Park West. <laughs> and so I was listening to that thinking, wow. <laughs> um, so how should a reader approach it? I, I don't know, because you can't strip away preconceptions you have of the author. Uh, sounds odd for me to say, but in my experience, most people's impression of me is a misconception. And it can be changed with five minutes of, of open-minded conversation. It's just hard to have five minutes of conversation with so many different people. So I don't know is the answer. I hope people will read the novel as agnostically as possible. And I think if they do, they'll be drawn into it because it's not about politics. It's about how, it's a cool story, but about how the justice system works, again, in my lived experience. But I don't, I, I, I'm not a fool. There may be many other things, but I know people approach it with a preconception that I can't do anything about. So we're definitely going to have a a thoughtful conversation today, which will hopefully clarify those misconceptions. Um, and so you've written um, non-fiction books, incredibly well-reviewed and well-regarded, and then you write a debut novel, a, a work of fiction. So what caused you to jump ship? The editor of my second non-fiction book kept nudging me he would, first of all, he would refer in the manuscript to portions of my life as this scene and that scene. And I would say, those aren't scenes, that, that's what happened. And he said, yeah, but you write narrative well, you write dialogue well, this is really almost as if it could be a novel. You ought to write a novel. And I said, no. And he said, what if I paired you with a James Patterson? I said, I don't, I don't know James Patterson, but I've always loved to write. So if I did it, I would do it myself, but no. And then something strange happened. The, I think the, the major block was I was too close to the work. I struggled for 30 years to read crime fiction or espionage or terrorism-related stuff or watch it on television. I think not because I was critical of how they got it, but because it was I didn't want to fill my head with it. Four or five years after getting fired, I was far enough away from the work that I thought it might be fun to tell some stories about the work. And I started and found it addictive, in part because I conceived of the protagonist, Nora Carlton, who is uh, my daughter, and, and my daughter's name is not Nora Carlton, but uh, Maureen Comey. But Maureen Comey was the chief of the Violent and Organized Crime Unit in the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office, was on her feet prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, and it's a weird twist, in courtroom 318, the same courtroom I prosecuted the Gambino brothers in when she was four years old. And so it was obvious she had to be the protagonist. And once I got lost in picturing my, all four of my girls, it, was, it just flowed out and I was stuck in a great way. So um, for those of you who have not yet read the book, it follows the murder of a philandering former governor of New York, Tony Burke, in his luxury apartment. I'm not going to do any spoilers, so don't worry. And it explores the question of whether his estranged wife, Kyra, is responsible and as I went through the book, I kept on thinking how much of the narrative structure and the law and the courtroom drama and the investigative work was drawn just straight from the, the cortex of your life and how much you had to sort of toggle back and forth. How, how, much, how much of your experience is poured into the procedural dimensions of the book? 
A lot of it is because I was a mafia prosecutor in Manhattan, and then I was the chief federal prosecutor in Manhattan after 9-11. And so a lot of it is my memories. You know, I had a, a mafia defendant not show up for trial one day, and we found him in the trunk of his car with the canary stuffed in his mouth and a bullet hole in his head. It's a mob signal that we think he's going to sing, he's going to talk, and so we killed him preemptively. And so I took a lot of those things that were real and built them into the story, but I also brought it into the current day so it wouldn't be all nostalgia, again, through the lens of uh, my daughter. And was there anything that was, you took narrative license, there were things that prosecutors might not do or things that might not happen in court or were there things or, or could all of it have been and in fact, a nonfiction book, and you were kind of recounting what you lived in your very full career. It all, I'm trying to maintain a studied ambiguity on this question because I don't want people angry at me. So I've said to them, not every Taylor Swift song is about an actual boyfriend. <laughs> and so, and then one of my daughters said, no, dad, every Taylor Swift song is about a former boyfriend. Uh, and so I, it's a lot of Easter eggs hidden in this. So, so it's a combination of things that actually happened and things that might have happened. And I, I'm, I'm told that oftentimes crime fiction writers will generate excitement by having a prosecutor go rogue, uh, violate the law, do something clearly wrong in service of a greater good or something. And that, nothing wrong with that as a vehicle, as a device for writing an exciting book. But in my experience, the work is really exciting. And in the main, the people are trying to get it right. They're flawed people, as I am, but they are trying to do the right thing in the right way, and you can tell that story, which was my lived experience, and not lose any of the excitement. And so it's a, it's a mix. I did things like one of my witnesses in, in racketeering cases was one of the world's great art thieves. Sounds an odd thing to say it that way. I don't mean as a compliment, but he, his nickname was Frenchie. And so I've used that nickname, not his real name. And he walked into the courtroom one day to testify in a racketeering case, and one of the lead defendants mouthed to him, you're dead. And I didn't see it because I was looking forward, but I saw his reaction. And then I knew something was wrong. And so I went and spoke to him and then something happened in the courtroom. I actually went back and got the transcript from that trial so that the dialogue I could recount was actual life because it's pretty gripping stuff. And so it's this combination of real in the sense that it actually happened and real in the sense that this could happen. So in the kind of eerie life imitates art, imitates life imitates art world that this book is clearly embedded in, um, one of the central devices is two parallel court cases, one in a federal court, one in a state court. And what happens in these two court cases is you use it as a, both a dramatic device and a legal, jurisdictional, evidentiary device. And there is a little bit of that going on with the former president right now as we speak. Tell us a little bit about that in the novel, and then we may begin to bleed into real life as well. Yeah, so in Lower Manhattan, there are crowded together a group of proud, justifiably proud, law enforcement organizations, prosecutors, and investigators. You have NYPD headquarters, you have the FBI New York headquarters, you have the U.S. Attorney's Office, so federal prosecutors working for up to the Attorney General, and then you have the Manhattan DA's office. And those are all, you can actually stand in one spot in Foley Square in Lower Manhattan and turn and see all of their buildings. And that's a recipe for incredible competition, 
and incredible dysfunction at times. I often described our relationship with the Manhattan DA when I was the U.S. attorney as we're blood-sworn enemies unless we're living together and having a baby because we did a lot together as sort of a task force approach, other things we fought over and competed for. And I once thought if I could be king, I would try and do away with that competition. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that's wrong. There's, there's greatness in that energy and competition, but there's a lot of friction. I, when I became U.S. attorney, the DA was a legendary figure named Bob Morgenthau, and the relationship was at a pretty low point at that stage because my office had stolen a securities fraud case, in their view, from them by charging it before they could. And under New York state law, the federal indictment would serve to block them from charging, whereas the reverse was not true. You could have someone charged in the state and still be charged federally for the same offense. And so I started taking Bob Morgenthau to lunch, which just my whole life is a series of imposter complex um, episodes, but taking him to lunch and sitting in a booth at an Italian restaurant that had his name on a brass plaque uh, was something. And he was very hard of hearing. And so he would say, He'd ask for status updates on the things we were doing together. And I would whisper the answer. And he would say, I can't hear you. Where, where are we on that grand jury thing? And I'd try again to whisper. And I think I was unable to build the relationship because he thought I was withholding. And I was just trying to avoid sharing it with the whole restaurant. So I spent tons of time on this and didn't solve the problem. So I've tried to capture in there, in the novel, that friction between two proud groups of people. And I wish I could see inside the decision by Alvin Bragg, the DA in Manhattan, to charge Donald Trump and for him not to be charged federally related to his payoffs to former uh, porn actress. I can't see from the outside, but I suspect buried in there is some of that longtime friction. So in both your novel and in your nonfiction work, there's this very strong strain of independence, integrity, uh, and adherence to a higher calling, a set of ethics which you hold yourself to and that you think all civil servants uh, uh, should hold themselves to. It's a very, comes across incredibly strongly. And you wrote your college thesis on Reinhold Niebuhr. My mentor uh, at, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa wrote his college thesis on Reinhold Niebuhr. So I am... Um, I have some exposure, um, at least, you know, by osmosis to his work. But I wonder for those people who don't, aren't familiar with his work, whether you wouldn't give a little encapsulation and also how it's impacted some of the ways. I think there's clues to Jim Comey in Reinhold Niebuhr, if I'm right. Yeah, Niebuhr was a theologian and philosopher in primarily operating in the first half of the 20th century who was grappling with the question of, evil in the world and how a believer should think about human existence in light of the way human beings are. And, and so he spent a lot of time writing moral man and immoral society that in groups, people are inherently amoral and tend to be hijacked by the loudest yeah. voice. And so there's a tremendous danger in all human groups. He wrote about the irony of American history that despite stated positive intentions, it's always the case that there are bad effects, bad results from lofty proclamations by the American foreign policy establishment. So he was a critic of, uh, especially of the United States, but through the lens of the nature of humans. And the reason this appealed to me so much is I arrived at college with a pretty dark view of the world. 
a traumatic thing that happened to me in my home through a home invasion robbery when I was a senior in high school. And I thought, God, people suck. And Niebuhr, to my ears, said, yeah, people suck. Definitely. They suck a lot. They especially suck in groups. But that's not an excuse for you, right? We can't achieve, in his view, God's love on this imperfect earth, but we can achieve a rough approximation, which is justice, the balance of power. And so, yes, people suck, but that is an increases the obligation of good people to participate in the public life of their nations because that's where justice could be achieved. And so he had this, he took my darkness and turned it and said, yes, you're right, but that means you must get involved and try to make the world a better place. It will never be perfect, but you must strive for justice. And he was influential and a lot more important and significant people than I, big figure in the life of Martin Luther King, big figure in the life of Barack Obama. He and I discussed it during our last personal conversation before he ruined my life. Uh, and, and so that's, that's how it, it's an oversimplification, but that's how I think about Niebuhr. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So one of the things that Niebuhr says is that the Christian must enter the political realm in some way in order to pursue justice, and which this keeps the strong from consuming the weak. Yeah, his, that's his, that people suck, but said more eloquently that, that if you are a believer, and he wrote from a Christian perspective, but the, the logic applies across all faith traditions or none, frankly, that if you are, that justice is a balance of power, it is the best we can hope for in an imperfect world, and so it's imperative that you participate in that balance to protect the weak. So um, Mark Twain said history never repeats itself, but it often does rhyme. And we are having a conversation today on the same day that we're talking about your debut novel. Donald Trump will be arraigned in Miami for his handling of classified materials. Some have argued that the reason Donald Trump is president is because of an investigation into how Hillary Clinton handled classified materials, and that investigation was led by you. And you have said that the possibility that you might have influenced the election has left you feeling mildly nauseous, something that your daughter grammatically corrected you on. Um, and so there's this weird moment. We're literally sitting in a room where the reason why Donald Trump is being prosecuted is for something that you investigated a prior public figure for, and this is the handling of classified materials. It's kind of spooky, no? Yes, sp spooky's a good one. I like that better than what was running through my head. Uh, yeah, it's a weird... I used to say that Donald Trump was obsessed with me, but now I... 
seems I can't get him out of my life, nor can the rest of us. And, and the notion that it's, that his legal jeopardy center on the same set of statutes is really odd, although the, the difference is extraordinary. And anybody who can't see it doesn't wish to see it between those two cases. But yeah, I get the weirdness. And so I think I want to kind of abstract for a moment, because in a way, we, you could have a conversation about this and you could do a sliding doors conversation and say, what could one have done? And the nexus between history and Donald Trump and one's own person. There's very, very few people on the planet whose personal decision making in a conference room and the holding of a press conference and the choice of words at a press conference have arguably changed the course of history. And that is definitely the case with you definitely the case with you, I think. So I think what's what's interesting about today's conversation is I read your book, Higher Loyalty, and your inscription in it was very moving to me. And I'll read all of the, to everybody in the, the audience, the inscription. And that says, to my former colleagues, the career people in the Department of Justice and the FBI, whose lasting commitment to the truth keeps our country great. That was your dedication. Keeping our country great is obviously loaded words in the context of Donald Trump. But lasting commitment to the truth was really struck me because you used a lasting commitment to the truth, not a lasting commitment to justice. And I have a sense that you did that deliberately. So why choose truth, not justice? First, I see them as different things. It took me a while, especially as a young prosecutor, to understand that, that that you can often know something to be true, but yet be unable to achieve a just result based on those, those facts. I've been involved in horrible cases where I was highly confident someone was a killer, a serial killer, I remember the case, and we couldn't prove it because our justice system had been set up in a way that I fully support to have a high bar to uh, charging and convicting someone. Right? In the States, unanimous jury of 12, finds beyond a reasonable doubt that the government has proven all elements of the offense. And so it took me a while to understand that I can know something, believe something, and yet fall short. Sometimes the bad guy gets away, and we've set it up that way on purpose. That that's a cost that we knowingly endure so we avoid the cost of innocent people being convicted, something that still happens in my country despite the setup. And so I chose it for that reason, but I also chose it because I was writing this, the first book in 2017 and 18, when, this is still the case in the United States, the very notion that there is truth was under assault. Steve Bannon, one of the henchmen of Donald Trump famously said, you just gotta fill the zone with shit so that people can't figure out what's true or false, just overwhelm their ability. And, and I've long believed that there is there are notions and senses in which truth is subjective, right? I believe this, you believe that. But I, you can dislike rain. I heard someone say, I can like rain, but there's only one truth about whether it's raining in this room. And I felt like we were at a place in America where those distinctions weren't relevant anymore or were under attack by people like our former president. And so I thought it was important to speak in those terms because there is a core operative truth that has to be at the center of our public life, has to be at the center of our judicial life, and was in danger by an avalanche of lies of being washed away like a sandcastle at the beach. So that's too long an answer, but that's why I chose those words. So I started my career working 
for South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a body set up to do what Michael Ignatieff fam famously said about truth commissions is they never establish the truth. All they do is narrow the range of permissible lies. And so they clarify whether it's raining. You can say, you know, it's mildly overcast, but it's raining or it's not raining, right? And you can characterize the weather in certain ways, but you know when it's raining. And I think to your point, clarifying the truth is the the bedrock of democracy and the bedrock of civilized societies, and it is very much under threat globally for a range of reasons which I hope we'll discuss, and very much under threat in the United States. But it does come to the question, in a way in South Africa we chose, we had to establish a truth commission because justice was not available to us. It was constitutionally impossible because an amnesty had been offered, and it was even arguably unwise because of the delicate nature of our transition. In the United States, you can have a big argument about whether justice is obtainable in the United States, but at least in principle and in theory, you can get justice and you can get truth. And it seems to me that your life and people in your position have represented this very delicate balance between being truth seekers and justice seekers. And I think arguably where you got yourself into a muddle in your life was was tussling between the truth-seeking role of a person at the very highest level of a justice um, institution and the justice-seeking role for the reasons maybe you just articulated, which is sometimes justice is elusive. A person's objectively guilty, but because we try to set up all these procedural safeguards, they get away with it. But the least you can do is tell the truth. And I fear, as I, I suspect, and I'm, I'm inviting an open conversation, is that may have been something that happened with the Hillary investigation, is you wanted to tell a truth even though you, justice wasn't appropriate. And so you gave that fateful press conference in which you wanted to characterize her behavior in a certain way because you wanted the public to know the truth even though there wasn't a crime that could be prosecuted. Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't, I don't see it that way, honestly. I... First of all, I don't see the press conference as that significant, and I can explain why. The, the Justice Department has long believed, and rightly in my view, that the public confidence that the institution is apart from partisan politics is the lifeblood of justice. And so there's long been an exception to Justice Department policy. Normal policy is we finish an investigation, we don't say anything, we just close it, we go do something else. But in cases of intense public interest, because public faith and confidence is the lifeblood, the department has long provided transparency. When Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, and lots of people had reasonable questions about why, why aren't there charges, the department put out a very, very detailed statement explaining why. And so it's hard for me to imagine a case of greater and legitimate public interest than an investigation that was being completed of one of the candidates for president of the United States. And so the decision to offer transparency there was consistent with our traditions, our norms, and our policies. Where I got myself in a crack was doing it separate from the Attorney General for reasons that are complicated, but for this purpose, I don't think all that important. That was not my problem. And in fact, people tend to forget that the Republicans were furious at me for that press conference because they, I remember Donald Trump said it to me, you saved Hillary Clinton when you should have charged her. And of course, that's false. But the transparency was designed to say, we've done hard work, we've done good work, here's what we found. Here's what we think of it. Here's what we're recommending. This investigation is over. Go on with the rest of your lives. Where I got in a crack was then I almost inevitably 
was subpoenaed to testify on Capitol Hill to defend the work by the Republicans who thought I was corrupt. And so I defended the work all summer and into September, as did the Attorney General, and said over and over again, we're done, we're done, we're done. We've done a comprehensive job. We've looked at everything we could possibly find. There's nothing there. Go away. And then I walked into my conference room on October 27th, and my team told me, not only is it not over, but we have found a trove of emails that dwarfs anything we found before. We can't review it in time before the election, and the result may change. And by the way, the Department of Justice has already decided to go get a search warrant to look at these emails. <clears throat> what do I do? And so the two doors I faced, I really don't think of as the intersection of justice and truth. I had two options. I had told the American people something that was false, and so I could correct that. That's a nightmare. Or I could let it go and let them go vote based on false testimony from the FBI. And how do I reconcile that? How do I choose between those two doors? And so I really thought of it in terms of, so what are the norms of this institution? What are the values? What decisions should I make? Should one of my people ask, should I consider who I want to be president? Because I know either of these doors could have an impact on an election. And I said to one of my very best lawyers, Tricia Anderson, when she asked, should you consider that what you're doing may help elect Donald Trump president? I said what I still believe. I can't. I cannot go down that path because you don't want the FBI director making decisions based on that value judgment. I have to make a value judgment within this institution. What are our traditions, norms, values, what's, and then of course, because I was at this point a little bit of a chicken shit, I said I'd also like cover from the attorney general. And so I asked my staff to contact her office and say I welcome a conversation with her about this. And the answer came back, she disagrees with the way he sees it, but she does not wish to speak to him. And I've been around a while, so I knew what that was. That was, you will take this hit. And I thought, well, between the two doors, I can't conceal this from the American people. The FBI cannot, by its inaction, lie. So I have to tell Congress in some limited fashion that we've reopened this. Reasonable people can disagree about those two doors, but I will defend to the rest of my life the integrity of the decision-making. It was not based on politics. It was made by a thoughtful group of people. And I honestly think, it may bug people, I think that decision will stand the test of time. And if my wife were here, she would say, and 2020 proves it had no impact. So I'm going to read you back your own words on this topic. And I, because I think th this, when you enter the truth-seeking terrain and your words have political consequences and when you make justice decisions is, let's all stipulate, an exquisitely difficult thing. And what you were faced with was an exquisitely difficult thing. And I think there are very few people who I, who, and I've, I know a bunch of people who know you and who I've spoken to and who will say that there's not a, a corrupt, unethical, political bone in your body that when you made that decision, you made it according to your own sense of what was right and wrong. But you could still get that wrong, not just on the facts, but you could also get it wrong on the principles. And that's the conversation I, I want to push a little bit, if sure. you don't mind. Sure. So you said, it's entirely possible that because I was making my decisions in an environment where Hillary Clinton was sure to be the next president, my concern about making her an illegitimate president by concealing the restarted investigation bore greater weight than it would have if the election appeared closer or if Donald Trump were ahead in all polls, but I don't know. That sounds an awful lot like taking politics into account. That's me. I've since been told that's a mistake in a 
government official memoir trying to cross-examine myself. I don't remember consciously thinking about that, but what I'm trying to say in that book is I'd be a fool not to recognize I was living in an environment where on some subconscious level, there may have been an assumption that Hillary Clinton is going to be president. And so you can't have her become president with the FBI having concealed something from the American people. Now, the truth is I really don't remember that, thinking that, but I'm just trying to be fully, I'm looking yeah. at all the possibilities. So you, of course that's a possibility. But, but, but what I think is instructive about it, and again, I, I'm pressing it because I think it has such consequence from people who in future generations will assume your particular role, is your words were my concern about making her an illegitimate president, right? You're not in the business of making anybody a president. You're in the business of pursuing justice. You're not in the business of making people presidents. So, so you could have said, I'm going to look at the facts. I'm going to investigate them. If you're guilty of those facts, I'm going to prosecute you. And if you become the president or don't become the president, then I'm going to prosecute you when you're the president or you're the failed candidate. But why that arrogating to yourself the role of being shaping or influencing the election in that way? Well, first of all, the intention is not to shape or influence, but you're facing a choice that can't be delayed. Two norms have crashed into each other. The FBI and the Department of Justice always promptly correct testimony that's misleading or inaccurate, and the FBI and the Justice Department always endeavor not to be involved in elections. And so by doing nothing in that situation, you're making a choice. And so I really don't think of it as seeking justice. I think of it as I had to resolve a collision between two norms, and by doing nothing, I could resolve that collision. Right. And, and that struck me as maybe that's the where we'll go, but we need to talk about what the doors are that we face. Right. So exactly. So so, the, and that's why we we started with the icebreaker, the collision between the norms of truth and justice, because. In your interview with George Stepanopoulos, you, he pushed you on your characterization of Hillary's dealing with those emails as careless. And you said extremely careless. And they could be wildly careless, but that's not a crime, right? But by, by spending time characterizing it as wildly, as extremely careless, what you were doing was you were putting truth in front of justice. You were wanting the American people to know that what she'd done was careless. I think, frankly, for the person in her position, it probably was incredibly careless. But you, you didn't need, a, a prosecutor in your position didn't need to say, didn't need to do the truth, the editorializing. You could have just said, she didn't commit a crime. She didn't commit a crime. That's my finding. But, but, but what you did is you characterized it and you put the truth-seeking and the didactic dimension on top of the justice dimension. And those are two norms that are, are difficult to, to, to... I mean, you, you, were, you were literally struggling with those norms. No, I wasn't. I, I mean, I, I understand your framework. I really don't think your framework fits here. I had a, I had a goal. Again, I went back and looked at wherever the Department of Justice had done this in recent memory. And the transparency you have to offer the American people to explain, we're not gonna bring charges here, here's why. Think about how you would do that without explaining what the conduct was. And I needed to explain, here's the bar for prosecution. She is under that bar, in my view, which is actually still my view, that without putting some sort of description on the conduct, it's a nonsensical explanation to the American people. The bar is here, we decided she didn't meet the bar. Well. 
what was she then? Was she just a teeny bit below the bar? Was she on the floor? Was she in the middle? And so I chose those words to try and capture the fact that there was, there was serious issues here. So it's up here, but it doesn't rise to this level. So it was simply an effort that I, people, I think, over-index on this. I don't know how you would give that statement without a description of what the conduct was so you could explain it doesn't rise to the level of something that would be prosecuted. So I don't see it as a framework truth justice. I see it as a simple rhetorical question. How do I convincingly explain that this is a reasonable decision? And you can't just let the facts speak for themselves. You can't just say, I'm investigating a crime the crime, the factual predicate is not, may, is not met. There are a thousand different ways and adjectival clauses you can use to characterize the underlying con content. In the context of a presidential election, I'm not going to choose adjective A versus B. Because I think even in your book, you sort of, you go back and forth on saying which words to use and you, there's, there's, there's a phrasing that you settle on which had, you know, you were aware of the kind of truth dimensions or the politics of it when you were choosing your language. Sure, I knew every word would be picked apart. And so yeah. it's, I'm up for suggestions as for other words to use, but I really did think that to be transparent with the American people, I need to say, this is what this is. This is why it's different from all of these situations where someone's been prosecuted. And yeah, I mean, so I, I don't, it would be an odd statement indeed to say, yeah. here are the cases that were prosecuted, this is different, full stop. I think yeah. that would leave, it would be unfair both to the Justice Department and to the subject of the investigation, Hillary Clinton. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a final view on this and then we're going to go into Russia. In this country right now, there was a series of investigations, party gates into the conduct of members of, of um, Boris Johnson's administration during COVID. And in some ways, it seems that in, in societies where there's a, with high degrees of free media and an independent judiciary, almost in the current truth environment that we've discussed, every decision that an independent prosecutor has to make is just, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Every word is picked over. And the institutional independence and integrity of people are just always under assault. And so particularly when people make decisions not to prosecute, the decisions around the framing of it becomes really, really, really complex and, and contested. And your, your famous, uh, I think it was your kids saying you see crested, which was, you know, you, you did the full explanation and then in the very final part of the press conference you said, and she's not guilty, but you spent a lot of time with an objective audience looking at it going, Hillary Clinton did some absolutely appalling things and she was incredibly irresponsible, but I'm not going to prosecute her. And then you said, which I thought was interesting, you said, I think maybe that was an example of my ego sneaking through, that I thought I knew the best way to present this was not to give them the headline up front because I thought they won't then listen to the rest of it. So you gave the headline at the bottom because you wanted to spend time telling a story about her conduct. And that was important to you. I wanted to offer maximum transparency under our policies and traditions so the American people, no matter where they were politically, it didn't matter, so they could understand 
here's what was done and why I should trust this result. And my worry, my kids are right, if I could have reviewed this in advance with my kids, it would have been better, but I couldn't. Uh, that, that I thought I knew the best way to do it was not to distract people, because I would give them the headline at the beginning, all the reporters may run out of the room, not literally, but maybe in their heads, and we'd lose the ability to share the transparency. It's a small difference, but if I were to do it again, I would open with a headline, close with a headline, provide the transparency in the middle. Yeah. And even this conversation to me tells you, you how hard it is to try and figure this out. Like, um, it, people with the highest integrity of which you embody find this factually complex, right? Imagine a, a complete political appointee who's an appointment of Donald Trump who's just got a political agenda, how subject these, these incredibly powerful roles are to abuse if someone like you had to, had to grapple with it in the way that you did. I think Trump appointees may think about it more narrowly, though, so their, their mind is not all confused with, uh, with all, these all of these considerations. Yeah. Fine. Good. Well, well we, I mean, we're, I think if we've confused ourselves in this conversation, that's no, what these confused, conversations... No, I, I hope we haven't yeah. confused this audience. I'm just saying, yeah. I, the Trump crowd, is, in my experience, is not thinking about frameworks. And, no, no, no. Yeah. No, no, no. They haven't read, read Niebuhr, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, and let's just say he's pesky. Um, okay. Russia. Yeah. So... You investigated the Russia's influence, I'm using my words, influence on, potential influence on the election and also its impact potentially on the Trump administration. It is enormously globally consequential right now, the relationship between the United States and Russia. And if Donald Trump were to be re-elected, re in these terms alone, it would have giant geopolitical consequences because, you know, we've now learned what, you know, what happens in authoritarian regimes doesn't stay in authoritarian regimes, Ukraine being the, the, the key case study of that. So I've always thought... Donald Trump's relationship with Putin and the way he behaves, Putin has to have something on Trump. Uh, and consistent with your confidentiality commitments, I wonder if you could tell us what you think about that. <laughs> the honest answer is I don't know. I'm struck by the same thing. Even in private, he wouldn't criticize Putin. And in fact, when I started to get the sense that my relationship was done with Donald Trump was when we were sitting in the Oval Office and he started recounting what he had said about Putin and America having killers too. He'd said something that was very controversial in the States. He was trying to get me, as he frequently does with people, to affirm him. And I said, first part of your answer was fine, Mr. President. The second part, no. We're not the kind of killers that Vladimir Putin is. And when I said that, this shadow crossed his face. And I remember going telling my chief of staff, yeah, I think it's... Uh, think it's done between me and Donald Trump. I don't know what's behind that. And, and I think I can say this publicly, right? I don't know. The FBI was conducting a counterintelligence investigation, which has both potentially criminal and intelligence aspects. That is, information can become evidence in a criminal case. It can become intelligence to guide policymakers and help the FBI in its mission of disrupting Russian interference in our country. And so that's what we were about starting in the summer of 2016. Bob Mueller was appointed after I was fired and given the remit of taking the criminal investigation. I don't know that anyone ever finished the intelligence investigation to try to understand not whether obstruction crimes were committed, not whether crimes of conspiracy with the Russians were committed, but what is going on here 
And so I'm not sure that work was finished. And the, and the reason I say that is I've read the thousand page report by the Republican run Senate Intelligence Committee, which is an extraordinary document that lays out everything known about this. And they note in there that there are shortfalls because a lot of the work wasn't completed. So I don't know the answer to that. And maybe it's something benign, maybe it's something much more serious, I just don't know. So how do you, how do you go about, and, and what's the legal framework? And I think that this is, is sort of important for people trying to safeguard democracies in this moment. What are the legal frameworks around inappropriate and appropriate impact or influence on, on U.S. elections by foreign powers. And, you know, you could have Barack Obama go to Sweden and have some lovely social Democrat Scandinavian who we all thoroughly approve of say warm things and contribute money to the Democratic Party's coffers. And we might think that that's completely acceptable. We might not. But there's something different. And, and, and are we being consistent in how we think about this, but what's the framework that we should be looking at it objectively? From the FBI's perspective, it's uh, intelligence requirements framework that comes down to the FBI from the U.S. intelligence community, the Director of National Intelligence. And the, the, the question to the FBI is, again, because its jurisdiction is within the United States, not, not foreign intelligence, to answer the question, what are foreign nations doing in America to begin with, especially the adversary nations, and what are they doing to participate in our political process? And that information is collected and then pushed up the hill so that it can guide decisions by the President of the United States and, the, and policymakers. And you can see how complicated it gets when the President of the United States is potentially a subject of the investigation. And there's a logic puzzle there. Can the FBI even investigate the President in that sense? And so it's thought of through, let's understand what other nations are doing here, and let's figure out how, if it needs to be disrupted, how we can disrupt it. Now, sometimes it's disrupted through criminal action, gathering evidence and prosecuting people. Sometimes it's disrupted in other ways, through publicizing, for example, or through a demarche, or through some other non-criminal means. But that's the general approach. I want to turn in our remaining time to what's happening in Miami today. Uh, and just generally all the various threats that Donald Trump is facing in relation to his handling of classified materials. I mean, you've obviously, I should imagine, looked at it with care. Um, two things. One is, could you distinguish, if there is a distinction, between the Hillary email matter and what he's done? Well, let's start with that. Yeah. It, it's uh, so readily distinguishable that anyone who can't readily distinguish it is not interested in doing it and there are many of those in the states. Uh, the Clinton case involved this, and it wasn't about her private server, that's gotten lost in, the, in all the noise over it. It was about, she was having conversations on an unclassified email system about subjects that were classified. And so those conversations could still be done on email, but they would have to be done on an email system that is built and regulated to permit secret or top secret conversations. And I think what she would say is that I get that, but my staff, State Department had terrible technology, and so we often tried, because we couldn't get to a secret system, we would try to talk around subjects. And we didn't do this work, the intelligence community did. Turned out a number of the emails went too far and crossed over to discuss, in eight cases, top secret topics and a couple dozen other secret topics. And so that's what the case was about, not about retaining documents. There was no proof 
of obstructive conduct on her part, no proof of false statements on her part. That was the case. Now, I encourage you all to read the, the indictment that the special prosecutor filed, because it's, it's what's called in the states a speaking indictment. You now know, if you read that indictment, what all the evidence will be at the trial. There's pictures there, there's excerpts from taped conversations. The story is laid out there. And I don't know Jack Smith, but I'm guessing he did that for a reason, to offer transparency, to say this is what this is about for those who are interested in understanding what it's about. And it's about an enormous amount of material, actual documents, classified at very, very high levels, consistently more sensitive information than discussed in the Clinton emails. And then most importantly, this case is about obstruction. The special prosecutor actually focuses on the period between when Donald Trump received a grand jury subpoena and when the FBI had to go search to retrieve the information. And so this case is really about obstruction of justice and flaunting of the law. And there was no evidence of that, no, no consideration of charges of that in the Clinton case. So they're both about classified information. Really, the similarities end there. And I read the indictment, by the way. Trump is in big trouble inside a courtroom. And you've all seen this. You can say whatever you want with hair dye running down your face at a press conference outside. But you can't, in an American courtroom or a British courtroom, heaven help you if you are a lawyer making false statements, saying things you don't believe, and the witnesses will all testify under pain of perjury. And so the reason I say it that way is he will make a lot of effort outside the courtroom, but inside the courtroom, if he's able to find a good lawyer, they will tell him, whoa, you've got a real problem. And this, if you put this in a script, someone would reject it, right? If you put it in the prospect the president may be convicted, sentenced to prison, and still run for president, we may face that in the United States. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How much, a lot has been made of the, the, the current judge in the matter. Will she remain the judge in the matter? How much influence she'll have in the matter? She's been sympathetic to Donald Trump, both as an appointee, but on the subject matter here. How relevant do you think it'll be and how determinative may it be? I don't know. I have an educated hunch that it's very bad for Donald Trump that she's the judge because the decision she made, and this isn't a high confidence read, but reasonable confidence, that the decision she made brought her professional humiliation, which no judge wants to experience. And so if, I'm, if Trump has a thoughtful lawyer, I don't know that he does, but if he has a thoughtful lawyer, they'll be worried about her trying to recover some of that reputation by bending the other way to avoid being seen as doing any favors for Donald Trump. So I, I don't know. I don't know whether she'll recuse herself. I'm not sure there's a basis for it, but she knows that not only public opinion, elite opinion among lawyers, and the views of the conservative, strongly Republican Court of Appeals that sits above her, that smacked her for the way she handled that, all will weigh heavily on her as she thinks about this case. 
And the timeline for the proceedings, I mean, you've conducted cases that can be strung along or can be expedited. And if you're Donald Trump, are you trying to string this along or you're trying to expedite it? And how's that time going to impact the political process? I have to imagine he'll look to stretch it out as long as possible, both because it's a great fundraising vehicle for him and also because he, he may contemplate the prospect of needing to pardon himself, which is a really interesting idea, uh, because a pardon in the United States, Supreme Court has said that accepting a pardon is an acknowledgement of guilt. And so it has two steps. A president has to pardon a person. And then when the person receives it and says, I accept this, it's an admission. Gerald Ford carried language on a little piece of paper to that effect in his wallet for his whole life after he pardoned Nixon, telling himself reasonably that this is actually an admission by Richard Nixon that he committed crimes. So how does that work in the context of pardoning yourself? I don't know. But it's a, it's a, his interests, I think, are to stretch it out, and the government's are to move it, move it, and to get it tried. And that's possible in the Southern District of Florida. It's a very fast jurisdiction, very different from Manhattan. So I could see it being tried by the end of this year. It's not a complicated case. And the law, if you're convicted and in prison, can you run for president? The good news is, yes, you can still run for president. Uh, you may not be able to vote for yourself. But you can, uh, you can still run for president. So this is the world we live in. So I want to take a, a step back because if, you, if he is convicted, there will still be 30% of his party who will regard him as a hero and would vote for him anyway. And I don't want to make a partisan statement because you could, you could make the argument the other way around in, some, in the U.S. or other places. But our politics has become so fractured and our justice systems have been so um, weaveled out from the inside. And we can all lament that, but part of the, you know, what Niebuhr would say is we have to get into the fray and remedy that. So if you were, uh, had the power to do it, how would you begin to re-architect the erosion of the perception of justice in Western democracy in general, but in the United States in particular? That's a hard question, obviously, in a, even in normal times. But when you have a large percentage of the population that doesn't want to hear that because each, each point you would make, they would see as an attack on their identity. I mean, there's millions of Americans who are trapped. It's very hard to admit as a human when you're wrong. It's harder still to admit when you're wrong and it touches on your identity. It's harder even than that when it's, you're wrong, it was on your identity and you were fooled. I've had fraud cases where the victims came and spoke for the fraudster at the sentencing even after he had pleaded guilty because they couldn't admit to themselves what they had done. And I think the January 6th images whisper from TVs to millions of Americans, you fool, look what you did, you fool. And most people cannot take that. Most people turn away, try and memory hole it because the cognitive dissonance is so painful. And so you're going to have a large part of the audience that actually kind of feel sorry for. They can't hear that because it's too painful. But for the rest, which I would estimate as high as 70% of Americans, the key is, again, to offer as often as possible transparency about how it's working. I actually think America passed its stress test in the wake of the 2020 election in large part because the legal system showed itself to be extraordinary at all levels. Democrats, Republican judges, it didn't matter. The reason that Donald Trump was 0 in 60 
is because the courts threw open their doors and said, we are the land of evidence, bring us the evidence. And there was none. And so courts at all levels said, not only no, but hell no. And then sanctioned lawyers for false statements, held people accountable for false statements. I don't know what'll happen with the Manhattan DA's office, but I, I love that the American people get to see this is what accountability looks like. This is the rule of law acting. I wish there could be cameras in federal courts because I'd like the American people to be able to see this is how it goes. This is an ordinary case with an extraordinary defendant, but the system works. And both the law and the culture around justice in the UK and the US goes down into the earth's mantle. And that's a, that's a consoling thing, but only consoles people if they understand it. And so again, my world is a justice world as often as possible. I think it's important to show it to the American people. It's working. This is what accountability looks like, no matter how it turns out. This is regular order. I'm going to ask a final question, which brings us back to the novel and then jumps us back into real life. One of the things the novel does is, again, I'm not going to spoil it for those who haven't read it, it shows how leaving digital breadcrumbs are important for the solving of crime. I'll leave it at that. Um, but we now are in an era where we are about to make a quantum leap into a form of tech that we hitherto have not yet encountered, and that's obviously AI. And, um, and I wonder what you think law enforcement is going to have to do. Every, every sphere of, of our lives are going to be impacted by, by AI. And I fear, and one of the fears of AI is that it's going to allow tremendous evil to be, to be reigned upon the world, and that therefore, like Niebuhr, those on the side of preserving order are going to have to adjust, and I fear we're behind in the arms race. So if you were back in your old job, what would you be doing to prepare for AI-fueled crime that is almost certainly going to occur? By asking people smarter than I to come and tell me how they're thinking about it, how we're preparing ourselves. Law enforcement was seriously threatened during and challenged during my time as director by ubiquitous strong encryption, and which is both a wonderful thing and a challenging thing because it protects our privacy, our information, which I love. It also allows bad people to communicate in ways that judicial authority can't reach. This is that on steroids because this is a question of what is real. Is it who is doing it and where, how, what can I trust? What is evidence? What is fakery? And so I don't know what I, the answer would be. And I think it's important as a director to realize it's not your job to know, but to make sure that the organization is thinking about it and preparing for this. I don't, I don't know, because I'm not there, but I would bet that they are really struggling even to come up with a framework for how they will think about this. And I know the courts are very concerned because this takes the notion of deep fakes and, and makes it exponentially more challenging. Evidence rules in both of our countries require authentication, require a competent witness to testify that this is what it appears to be. Well, what does that mean in the context of an AI created document or video? And so I think, I don't know the answer, but it's a question that I would be asking probably nearly every day if I were still there. Just that answer gives us enormous reasons for concern and to be terrified because the rules of evidence as we know them may just may be thrown out the window. Yeah, and we'll have to adapt to. Look, I, and I wrote about digital dust in the novel because 
even as FBI director, I worried that our legal frameworks and our civil liberties frameworks were not prepared to deal with the amount of dust that you and I leave wherever we shop, wherever we walk, wherever we go. In the United States, that all of that information is still treated as if we voluntarily provided it to a store, a business, a transportation network. And so the government doesn't need heightened authority to obtain it. It's treated as if it's like your bank record. But it paints such a rich, pointless picture of your existence that I don't think that framework makes sense any longer. And I didn't when I was director. And as I said, this, we haven't even figured out this problem, and now the problem has just gotten larger on us. So enjoy your day. <laughs> so we're going to have 10 or 15 minutes of questions. I'm going to implore you to ask a question, not make a speech. And if you make a speech, I'm going to cut you off. Um, hands. Yes. Hi. Uh, what is James Comey's process for bringing together a novel and creative work? The key to my creative process is that in 1987, I married well. <laughs> that I, um, my wife is really a partner in this. If she were here, she would say, yeah, but I don't write. True. But she is an ideas person. And so it starts with, she pitched this story idea to me, because obviously we were married when I was a mob prosecutor. She said, what about something like this? So right, let me go work on that. So I write a summary and she suggests on a Google Doc, which I much prefer because I find the face-to-face -to -face too painful. Because <laughs> I don't know about you in relationships, I have to go through a process where I deny she's right. And then I, she might be right, then I accept it. It's so much easier if I'm alone when that happens. And so then uh, once she and I have agreed upon what this overall plot would be, a bio of the characters, then I set out to write and she, and so I figure out where to place it, what trials to put it in, and then she reads it once a day and comments. And then once we get it in a place where she's happy and I'm happy, then it's out to the five kids. Then it's out to a group of friends who love me enough to really want to beat me up. And then it's ready to show to a publisher. So that's the process. And it's, I found it harder than nonfiction, but a ton more fun than nonfiction. And so this is actually what I want to do when I grow up, which is why I hope people buy it because I need them. I've already written the next one. And, and I really, this isn't a teachy book. Is that even a word? But it's a, I think it will take people inside institutions and show them the inside in a really cool way. And I love doing that. And the next one I'm citing in the world's largest hedge fund where I was general counsel for three years. It's fictionalized. I want to piss off my former employer. But it involves Nora Carlton, a crime novel, but in a very different environment, which I think will be fun. Thank you. Thank you. James, welcome to the UK and the great city of London. My question is, uh, we have something in common. We're of a similar age, you being a year older than me. Can you tell me if the color of your hair is natural? <laughs> or, or why or dyed? <laughs> Thank wow. you. It is uh, natural. I'm starting to laugh because I have a brother who's 18 months younger than I, whose hair is almost all white. And he's like, dude, you're dyeing your hair. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> look at these, look at these eyebrows. Look at this. It's just an accident of nature. If I grow a beard, it's all gray, and this will be there. So oh, th this is definitely going on to my uh, LinkedIn page, this interaction, <laughs> 100%. Sarah. Thanks. 
Hi, thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier about okay. information going either being used as evidence or for intelligence. And I wanted to ask if, so I'm originally from the States, but I live here. And um, I was wondering if you had an opinion on if the American people have lost or misunderstand that distinction. I don't know the American people ever understood the distinction. And I think the public conception of the FBI is still rooted pre 9-11. It's thought of as an intelligent, as a criminal investigative organization. And the Bureau is really a combination of MI5 and Scotland Yard. About half my personnel were funded under the intelligence budget. And their job is to collect information through procedures and under court supervision, but that meets policymakers' need to understand what is the world doing here in the United States. So I don't think so. And I think most TV shows not only show the director jumping out of helicopters and stuff, which is not accurate, but focuses on that criminal investigative piece. But the Bureau's worked hard, starting under Bob Mueller, to transition to a place where agents understand that they're to using their lawful tools, collect information, then figure out whether it goes into supporting a criminal case or into an intelligence report. So that's too long an answer, but you are correct. I don't think they understand it. Thank you very much. Um, what comes across listening to you is your sense of duty, which I think is great. Um, I'm asking for a friend this question. Um, what if you were concerned about your own country and your own former prime minister and former foreign secretary who is meeting with KGB people in Italy, and you see that the system is doing nothing about it. So, so what do we do? You know, Alistair Campbell's written a book about it, but what do we do? What does he do, this friend of mine, um, if he's concerned about it? You know, former people in our system are not being investigated. And you mentioned Clint, uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, what do we do? Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I follow the hypo, but it, it, if you're outside of the government, then if you have information you think is relevant to legitimate investigative authority, then you share it with them. If you're inside the government, then you avail yourself of the channels that, I, I don't know the UK organizations well, but I know are inside the FBI, to push that information up. And if you think it's not being handled well, to, to turn to the inspector general and to say, I'm worried about this not being pursued. Okay, I think we're going to, uh, one more question, one more question. So, the U.S. passing its stress. The institutions are just processes, and processes are carried out by people. So is there a sense of, sort of complacency and almost like naivety that the institutions will still hold up with different sets of actors, for example? No, I think so. The question was about institutions, which are just people um, following processes. And so is there a danger that there's a complacency that the institutions will handle it? There ought not to be because Donald Trump, as president, posed a direct threat to institutions of justice and the rule of law more broadly. I'm just saying I find consolation in watching how the justice system more broadly, the court system especially, which is not just people and processes, it's culture, which I didn't fully appreciate until I tried to lead organizations and realized that culture is the most powerful force in institutional life. And so there is a bedrock culture in the justice institutions in the United States and the justice institutions more broadly across the country that should be consoling, but you should not fall in love, sleep soundly at night, thinking the culture is gonna take care of it, that all of us have to participate. In fact, my worry that 
Lincoln, when, during the Civil War, loved to quote his Secretary of State, Seward, who apparently said to him one time, there's enough virtue to save America, but just enough. And America is going to be okay if her people participate. And so I, I, I hate being involved in the political process, but I'm going to try and add a marginal voice over the next 18 months to make sure that people don't take the next one off because what's on the ballot is the prospect of real and much more effective attack on those institutions. And if the American people engage, Donald Trump has not expanded his voter pool. So if the American people engage, there will be enough virtue to save her. But to motivate, it's important to, to constantly worry about that, despite your feeling that the stress test was passed, because it's coming again. And your college thesis, I keep coming back to it. Niebuhr said that passivity in the face of evil or humanity's capacity to be uh, bad to each other is unacceptable, that we have to enter the fray, exercise our virtues, and, you know, it's the reason we set up the conduit, which is to give people thousands of opportunities to make the world more just, more sustainable, but it doesn't happen if we sleepwalk, it happens if we show up and lead robust and active lives. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful for the conversation. Thank you so much for coming. This episode starred James Comey and the presenter was Paul Van Zyl. It was produced by Nicole Wong and edited by John Doughty. Special thanks to Rosie Fletcher and our friends at The Conduit. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.